0: pray for uh, just a couple of minutes for a couple of things. Um, Our friends, um, John and Melanie Birkenbein, who are serving at Penn State, uh, we have prayed at prayer meeting uh, various times over the last uh, year or so. Uh, They have been um, going through the difficulty of infertility. And um, this past weekend, Melanie had a miscarriage. So we're going to pray for Uh, John and Melly, this morning. We're also going to pray for our good friend who lives overseas, uh, Esther Johns. Um, She is looking for an opportunity to uh, teach in the country in which she lives. Great opportunity was available for her. It closed and now she's not sure what she's going to do and if she'll be able to remain there. She needs to find a job in some way. And uh, so we'll pray for Esther this morning. She's a bit discouraged uh, too. So uh, let's uh, lift these, our friends, to the Lord together, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning through Jesus Christ, who is our great Savior, and we come in his name. Um, We come not because of our own merit or on our own goodness or because um, we've succeeded this week, or um, we come through Jesus Christ, who is your beloved Son, whom you love, and we come in his name. He told us to come in his name. He said of us that he's not afraid, not ashamed to call us his brothers. And so we come to you through him. We come to you uh, through him to ask you to show mercy and grace to these, our uh, brother and sisters, who are uh, discouraged and struggling today. Lord, we give you thanks um, that you are the God of all mercies. You're the father of comfort. You comfort us in all the afflictions that we have. And uh, we would pray for John and Melanie today in this affliction that they have encountered of the loss of this pregnancy. Uh, Lord, you're clear in your word. You uh, tell us that you draw near to the brokenhearted and you care for all those who trust in you. And we pray that John and Melanie would not fail today in looking to you by faith and with confident hope. Father, we ask you for your mercies in their lives um, as as we have in the past. Your your word tells us that you settle the barren woman in her home as the happy mother of children. And we pray that you would show grace to John and Melanie that they might, um, according to your kindness, be able to welcome children in their home. Uh, Help them as they waver back and forth between great confidence and joy in your sovereignty and serious questions about what good you're going to bring out of this. Help them as they waver to trust in you. Remind them that there's no sorrow that they'll encounter here on earth that heaven cannot cure. Lord, we pray too for our friend Esther who is uh, living overseas and is... um, Perhaps anxious about the necessity of finding uh, employment where she lives, uh, Lord, we ask that you would open doors for her, uh, that you would give her confidence to pursue opportunities that present themselves. Um, you know, she she wrote about her own discouragement in, uh, when the last, the first opportunity closed. Lord, we pray that she would trust in you uh, through this time, and we ask that you would enabled her to represent you ever more faithfully uh, where she lives for Christ's sake. Now I'd like you to, uh, keeping your head bowed and your eyes closed, we have God's word open before us. I would like to give you just a a couple of moments that we would pray silently, that you would pray silently, perhaps ask God this morning that uh, if he had something to show you in his word, tell him you're willing to listen. If you've got something to say to me, God, I'm willing to listen this morning. Pray that this morning if if you so desire. Lord, we do thank you that your book is inerrant, it is true, it is trustworthy, it is joy-producing, it's enlightening to the eyes, it's sweetening to the soul, and we thank you that we have the opportunity to open it and read it this morning, and we pray that the Holy Spirit, that he would teach us well from this passage. We ask these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. I'm going to start reading from Acts chapter 13, verse 1. So you follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read Acts 13:1. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. Cyprus, of course, an island in uh, the Mediterranean. When they arrived at Salamis, which is a city known for its lunch meat, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means Bar Jesus, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight into Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the pro saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. When I do premarital counseling, I often have in the past worked through a book produced by Family Life Ministries, and it's called uh, Preparing for Marriage. And in each chapter of this book that I work through, there is a, a case study of a young couple named Bob and Sherry. Bob and Sherry, Bob's a a landscaper and Sherry uh, sells pharmaceuticals and they they lived, uh, before they got married, about 200 miles away, but they met one another at a weekend ski retreat for singles and they hit it off and their relationship grew and blossomed from this time forward. Um, Bob was really interested in having someone who, married to marry who was compatible with him, and he was thrilled. He was just thrilled when, uh, during basketball season, his favorite team came on, and Sherry sat there on the couch right next to him watching the games. Uh, you know, they lived a while, a distance apart, but every time they got together, they, they did, and she, she just loved it. He was even more thrilled when, to his surprise, one, one weekend he asked her if she wanted to go fishing on Saturday morning and she said, that'd be great, I'd love to. And there she was, the crack of dawn, in the boat with him on the pond, on the lake fishing. Bob thought he had met his match. Sherry, for her hand, she, uh, she wanted someone who was sensitive, a man who was sensitive and caring and considerate. And, and Bob was all those in the long conversations that they had on the phone. And, and um, He was so considerate, as a a matter of fact, that he even got dressed up and went with her to to the theater. She loves the theater. They would go go together to see plays and musicals, and it was wonderful. And Bob and Sherry were convinced that they had each met the perfect one for them. Uh, Now, uh, that confidence explains some of the confusion that Bob had uh, two months into their marriage when he said to Sherry, hey, let's go fishing this weekend. And she said, nah... I don't really like fishing. It's too early in the morning. It's cold out on the water. I don't really want to go. Really? No. He was even more confused when basketball season came around and the spot on the couch next to him was completely empty. Sherry, for her sake, uh, for her part, her confusion came the day that the new play opened up downtown at the theater, and she bought tickets, and Bob was not nearly as excited as she thought he would be about the purchase. He grumbled about the whole thing. He fell asleep twice during the play, uh, and at the end, Sherry said, this is the last time Bob and I are ever doing this. Now, uh, as the case study continues, you're supposed to figure out what happened to Bob and Sherry. You probably know, don't you? Um, before they were married, they were performing for one another. They, were, uh, they, they did what they thought was necessary to catch a spouse... But they also were, though, in their marriage here, missing out on one of the great joys of marriage. When you give yourself to someone else at the altar, a new world opens up for you. You have the opportunity to learn about new things and pursue new interests and develop new skills about all sorts of things. I, um, With Kathy, I have learned a lot more about quilting and sewing than I ever would have known myself. A couple of years ago, we went to an art gallery, something that I didn't do, have not done very often. And I've learned so much about vegetables, too, and how edible they are. It's amazing, (laughs) all these things. I've taken Kathy to uh, Monticello and Williamsburg and Mount Vernon. Uh, in, In a healthy relationship, you begin to absorb one another's interests. I think about Bob and Sherry as I I read this passage where Luke makes it very clear, as we have learned today, that the person in the book of Acts who is most interested in the spread of the message about Jesus is the Holy Spirit, right? In verse 2, the Holy Spirit set apart, sets Barnabas and Saul, sets them apart to be sent. And then in verse 4, the reminder again, the two of them sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, One of the ways that you know that you have a healthy relationship with the Holy Spirit, one of the ways that you know your relationship with the Holy Spirit is real, is that you begin to care and invest in and think about this mission that he loves too. In fact, I've said something like this before. One of the ways that you know your relationship with God is real is that he changes you. He challenges you. Specifically in Acts, what's the change about? The issue before us is how you think about this mission. This mission that Jesus gave us to testify about him to everyone on earth. You cannot have a healthy, growing relationship with the Holy Spirit and be apathetic toward this cause. Verse 4 makes me think specifically about what I do practically on a daily basis or a weekly basis to advance this cause. How? I cultivate in my own life and in the life of those under my care, my wife and my kids, what do I do that's helping them love here what the Holy Spirit loves? Now I know, I know that there's some days where if your children are alive and they've been fed and clothed during the day and are in bed and sleeping and there and safe, you've done really well, like that's a good day sometimes, but not every day, right? Right? Um, what opportunities are you making to ensure that they care about what the Holy Spirit cares about? It's the question that the whole book of Acts should make you think, should make you ask yourself. Before us, we have here in Acts 13 this very intriguing little story. It's it's the first episode in what many people, many scholars identify as Paul's missionary journeys, which is a decent way to unfold the book of Acts. Your Bible might have them. In fact, your Bible at the back probably has a map that shows Paul's missionary journeys and labels them in three different colors. Uh, And that's a fine way to unfold and understand the book of Acts. The problem with it, though, is that Paul had been on mission before that. Paul had done missions in Damascus and Jerusalem and Arabia and Syria and Cilicia. So this is actually, Acts 13, the redirection of Paul. This is Paul's, actually, Paul's third or fourth missionary journey. And for the rest of the book of Acts, we're going to study how the Holy Spirit, um, through Paul, spread the good news about Jesus as far away from Jerusalem as you could think, uh, namely Rome. Paul traveled from the time he became a believer until he was executed in, say, AD 65 or so. He traveled about 15,500 miles. 8,700 of them were by land or by, um, by foot, most likely. Paul, in his efforts to spread the message about Jesus, walked the equivalent of across the United States two and a half times. Now, Acts 13 here is important, this initial story we have, it's important for two different reasons. First of all here, I want to show you from these several verses how this passage, this story advances the book of Acts, advances the narrative of the book of Acts. Acts is a story in the Bible, and we always need help in becoming better story readers in the Bible. And I want to show you a couple of things to help you understand the story, the unfolding story of the book of Acts. But the second reason, though, that this passage is important is it helps us face one of the challenges that we have on mission. It's the challenge of, of facing opposition. Look with me this morning at how Paul responded to this opposition that he encountered. That's what we're going to come to in a few minutes. But first, I want to think about this story in the unfolding narrative of the book of Acts. What what do these verses tell us as we, we are Bible readers? First thing that this passage tells us is that Paul is a fully qualified apostle. Paul is a fully qualified apostle. Up to this point in time in the book of Acts, the hero of the story has been who? Peter. Peter's sermons, Peter does miracles, Peter's work. But Peter here is going to fade into the story and Paul's going to take his place. And in these verses we learn about Paul's preeminence or Paul's qualifications. Well, first of all, we see here he becomes Paul, right? Saul is his Jewish name, Paul is his Roman name. And from now on he's going to be known as Paul as he goes to these Roman cities. We see here taking him a leadership role over Barnabas. Barnabas had always been listed first. Now Paulo is the chief spokesman. Then we see this interaction between Paul and this magician, this sorcerer. Now, uh, this is the second magician that we've met in Acts. Here's a good reading skill. Let's think about this. Do you remember that first magician that we met in the book of Acts? It was in Acts chapter 8. His name was Simon Magnus. And who did he interact with in Acts 8? Peter. Now, both Simon Magnus and this man named Bar-Jesus, or Elimus, um, they are magicians, not in the sense of uh, today's great illusionists. This is not David Copperfield or Penn and Teller. Okay, that's not what's going on in this passage. These are men who claim that they have mystical powers and through incantations they can control other people or events. That's what sort of sorcerers they are. Peter in Acts 8 prophesies about Simon Magnus, and Paul does the same thing here in Acts chapter 13. Peter and Paul. We're going to see this two or three times in the book of Acts, where Peter has done something in the opening chapters, and now Paul's going to do the same thing. Why? Because Luke is making the argument that Paul is a fully qualified apostle. Now, that might seem strange to you, We pick up our New Testament and we read it and there's a lot more books in here by Paul than by Peter. Why would Luke feel the necessity to establish the apostleship of Paul? Well, Remember that Luke originally wrote this book to an audience that didn't have access to all of those books that Paul wrote. Um, there, there were, the, the New Testament hadn't yet been collected and, and Luke is going to the work of, of demonstrating or proving to his readers that Paul's qualified as a spokesman for Jesus Christ. So that's one of the things that this does in the unfolding of the story. Now second as part of this story of Acts here. This scene gives us a chance to highlight the selectivity of Acts. Acts is a selective story. Acts is a selective story. Look at verse 5 with me here in in this town of Salamis. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. And then verse 6, they traveled, they left. I want to know, maybe you do too, what happened in this town? Did anyone believe? Um. Did any miracles happen? What did Paul say? How did he preach? What did Barnabas say? What, um, what was John there to do? I have an idea about that. I'll share that in a minute here. They traveled on. They, went, they started here. They, traveled, they went from uh, Salamis, which is on the eastern side of Cyprus, and they went all the way over to Paphos, which is on the western side, and they would travel through several towns on this main road. What happened? I, did they preach in those towns too? I would think maybe. But why didn't Luke tell us anything about this? Why didn't he give us any of those details? Well, Luke is a selective story. Uh, Think with me about this, though, the implications of, of this, what this must mean here as we think about this. Paul and Barnabas and John come to town, and they go to a synagogue, and they start proclaiming that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. You have Barnabas there, warm, encouraging Barnabas there to, to support and, and help people through their anxieties and fears. You have Paul there, the theologian who's opening up Isaiah and with a knife-blade sharpness, he is, he is cutting apart the word and showing how Jesus fulfills all these requirements. And John is there and he says, yeah, I saw it. I'm an eyewitness. I saw Jesus be crucified. I saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. Uh, it's pretty impressive. And Doubtless, some of these people believed, and then this team moves on, and there they are. How many Christians were in Salamis? Salamis, I have no idea. Let's say 10, 12. What do they do now? They're, they're Jewish believers, now in Jesus the Messiah, but they're a new church. How are they supposed to function? What are they supposed to do? Huh. We have the New Testament, Right. It tells us what the church is supposed to do. Uh, tells us what we're supposed to meet, how, what we're supposed to do when we meet, why we meet, how we're supposed to be governed, what we're supposed to practice. Uh, it's very helpful. It answers so many of the questions that we have, but what do you do if you're a new believer in Solomus, Salamis, Salamis, and, and you have no New Testament? What do you do then? Ah You see how dependent they are on the gift of prophecy that the Holy Spirit gives. We talked about this last week and we'll talk about it more. The, the, this, the gift of prophecy, revelation from God by the Holy Spirit that bridged the gap between the conversion of some of these earliest believers and the completion of the New Testament books. Man, was it important. I don't know anything about these, these people. I, I, I don't know how many of them became believers. I don't know how long they, Paul and Barnabas and John were there. I, I, I don't know about the preaching in the cities in between. Luke is very selectively telling us episodes from Paul's ministry. Why is he doing that? I'm sure there's a lot of reasons why he's so selective. Every good story is selective. But Why is he selective? Because Luke wants us, in this case at least, to know how to face some of the challenges that we'll face as representatives of Jesus Christ. And specifically here, the focus is on dealing with opposition. What do you do when you're speaking about Jesus and, and you, you meet someone who is hostile to the gospel. In this case, the opponent is a man with two names. Bar Jesus, which is probably his Hebrew name, which means son of salvation. Jesus means salvation, bar son. Uh, it, maybe you've heard of this culture phenomenon. I'm sure you have. In Jewish context, when a little boy becomes 13, he has a bar mitzvah. Bar mitzvah means son of the covenant. Here, Bar-Jesus means son of salvation. Then he has a Roman name or a Latin name, Elimus. And verse 6 describes him this way. He is, what, a Jewish sorcerer. He's a descendant of Abraham, but he's not a very faithful descendant of Abraham because he's also a false prophet. That is, he's someone who claims to speak from God, but he's not really speaking from God. So he's a false prophet. And not only that, He's a sorcerer. The Old Testament is not very positive about magicians and sorcerers. So, he's not someone who takes Moses very seriously. But what he is, verse 7 also, is an attendant of the proconsul. The proconsul would be the leading Roman official on the island. And Bar Jesus is one of his advisors, he's one of his uh, members of the cabinet, perhaps. He has a pretty prominent, pretty important position. And what happens when Paul comes to town, Sergius Paulus is interested in the gospel and Bar-Jesus does everything he can to stop Sergius Paulus from hearing the gospel. He interferes in every way that he can and this is the story of how Paul faces him down. I wonder if you know anybody like this, anybody who is hostile like this to the gospel. Um, a few weeks ago I mentioned to you that roughly 5% of people describe themselves as hostile, antagonistic to the gospel like this. 5%, you probably know somebody like that. Now, in contrast, 11% of people said they're willing to talk about Jesus with anybody who wants, so there's twice as many willing people as there are antagonistic people out there. Uh, But still, I wonder if you know anybody like this who fits in this category. I want you to see this morning how Paul responded and what it teaches us about dealing with situations like that. Two things that I want you to see here from this verse, this passage in in responding to opposition. First of all, you should have confidence because the message of the gospel is powerful. You should have confidence because the message about Jesus is powerful. In fact, it is the most powerful message in the entire world. It is more powerful than this sorcerer. This would be important to Christians in Paul's day because uh, all throughout the Roman world there were sorcerers and magicians who claimed to have supernatural power. And, And Luke is affirming here that the gospel is more powerful than those sorcerers and those magicians. If you leave the United States and go overseas to certain parts of the world, you will meet sorcerers and magicians. And the gospel message is more powerful than them, than what they believe or practice. The message about Jesus is the most powerful message in the world. It's powerful because it's driven by the Holy Spirit. You see that in the text. It's also Luke. Luke kind of gets to dig in here. He's it, it passes quickly, but you, it, it's there. Luke, who uh, verse seven says, uh, Bar Jesus was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul. Why? Well, how do we know he was an intelligent man? Luke tells us he was intelligent because he wanted to hear the word of God. Luke has an agenda here. He wants you to know that if you are an intelligent person, you will want to hear the word of God too. The Bible makes claims like this over and over again, and and I, I hope we can believe what the Bible says here without arrogance in this issue. It is foolish to resist the gospel. The Bible uses a lot of words to describe people who resist the gospel. They're foolish, they're stubborn, they're hard-hearted, they have covered themselves with fig leaves and are hiding from God, they're wandering like sheep, they're people who go to the market and they make a bad trade, they're like reckless sons and daughters who squander their family wealth and turn from their parents who love them. It might be arrogant to say, for us Christians, to congratulate ourselves, right? And to say to one another, wow, we're awesome because uh, uh, we're, we're followers of Jesus. And people who aren't followers of Jesus, they're foolish and stubborn. It could be. It, you could say that without, with arrogance. But I think we should say it without arrogance because the Bible tells us that by nature we're all that stubborn and foolish and hard-hearted. It is not a sign of strength. It is not a sign of intelligence to reject The gospel, it is actually a slavish captivity to sin, the Bible says. Sin that makes you foolish. It's a form of rebellion against God, against the God who made us, who rescues us from our rebellion through his son, and it's stupid. If you come this morning, friend, and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm not trying to insult you, but what I want you to know is how upside down the world is. A few months ago I read a, a really fascinating book about the assassination of James Garfield, the 20th President of the United States. I know you think that's fascinating too, but I loved it. It was great. Uh, when James Garfield was assassinated, um, the majority of doctors at that point in time and surgeons had no, no thought in their practice or their, of medicine or surgery at all for sterile precautions. No ideas of all about washing their hands, no notion of germs, they didn't wash their hands or instruments, they didn't think about the the possibility of introducing an infection. One of the early advocates for sterile procedures in surgery and in the practice of medicine was a man by the name of Joseph Lister. They named a famous product after him called Listerine. Well, Joseph Lister had been making speeches and presentations at medical conferences and conventions about his sterile techniques, and most people mocked him and made fun of him. James Garfield died, not actually from the bullet wound, but because his whole body was filled with infections, because his doctors would just stick their hands in, his, in the hole, the bullet hole, all the time and look for things without washing their hands. And, and I, you read the book and you think to yourself, ugh. Right? How upside down surgery was 150 years ago. You can't imagine. You can't imagine if you're sitting in a doctor's room and he walks in to see you and doesn't wash his hands in front of you, you're a little suspicious about uh, her practice, about his practice. The world was upside down when it came to antiseptics. The world today is upside down when it comes to God. The world was made by him He made human beings like you to know Him and to love Him and to worship Him. Who in this world that God made, the God made, would not want to know Him and love Him and serve Him? But that's not the way we naturally are. That's not right. It's upside down. God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us from our upside-down condition. He lived that life that God intended that none of us do, and then he was crucified according to God's plan to pay the penalty we owe because of our sin. He rose again, and whoever believes in him and trusts in him will have eternal life, life with him, before him, in him. We have it the wrong way. We often have it the wrong way. We have this impression that people who reject the gospel are the smart ones. They're the self-sufficient ones. They're the intelligent ones. They're the educated ones. But the truth of the matter is that they are rejecting the most powerful message in the world. Oh, have confidence in the message. Have confidence in the gospel. Speak it clearly because it's the only hope for anybody in the world. Now, not only does this passage teach us to have confidence because the message about Jesus is powerful, you also should have courage. You should have the courage to confront because sometimes it's necessary. Have the courage to confront because sometimes it is necessary. This is not the only way that Paul responded to his opponents, but here is a clear example of this fierce, response to someone in opposition to the gospel. We have to be careful with this passage. A few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Scott unfolded Galatians 2. We talked about us confronting one another. Here, Paul is confronting uh, this unbeliever. And we have to be careful with this passage because... You don't have Paul's power, and you don't have Paul's insight. Both of them come from the Holy Spirit, and their are apostolic powers. You don't have them. You don't have the, right, the power to do, verse 11, what it says. You're going to be blind for a time. That might increase your evangelistic effectiveness, I suppose, if you did have that power, right? You, you don't have that power. The the spiritual blindness of Bar-Jesus becomes physical blindness. Kind of reminds me of of Saul, doesn't it? Saul the persecutor who who thought his eyes were open to see everything, and he hated Christians, and he hated Christ, and then he met Jesus, and he was blinded. His spiritual condition manifested itself physically. There's a a sense in which Paul here is rebuking his old self, and Bar-Jesus is becoming blind for just a time. No one alive has this power. No one alive has this level of insight either. Paul, very clearly and confidently, through the Holy Spirit, speaks about Elimus' character. You're a child of the devil. You're not a son of salvation. You're a son of the devil. You're an enemy of everything that's right. Deceit. And trickery are words that that mean that that Bar-Jesus taught what he did and believed what he did for his own financial advantage. He was using spiritual truths to make himself rich. You are perverting the right ways of the Lord. This is an interesting play on words in the text here. Um, Bar-Jesus perverts the gospel so no one converts to the gospel. There's a play on words. Perversion to hinder conversion. You don't have that level of insight about anyone. Uh, you can't speak that way about anyone. Um, and that may be a warning that some of you you should receive. Because some of you look at this passage and you see this necessity of challenging and confronting. And it gets your blood flowing and you think, yes, find me a heretic. I'm going to go at him. You just love this. This is God's given you to the church with that level of courage, and we're grateful for it, but be careful because you're not an apostle, you don't yet, you, you don't have that same authority. This is, this is not a model you can match perfectly, but <laughs> others of you who read this passage and think to yourself, oh my goodness, I would never ever do that, I can't imagine why I would ever want to do what Paul does here, that's just Amazing. You need to read this passage and understand that sometimes it's necessary. It it doesn't seem at first really like it does that Paul is, is loving his enemies here, does it? Or he's not exactly turning the other cheek. He's not blessing those who persecute him. But there comes seasons and moments when it's necessary for the sake of the gospel to speak clearly and boldly and sometimes harshly. D.A. Carson tells about a time he was in college and he um, was introduced on college campus to this man who was a a chemistry major, I believe, another student who was actually in his graduate years, he was in the graduate program, and he was known on campus, to those involved in campus ministry there, uh, he was known as a student who was a very effective discipler, a very effective evangelist and discipler on campus. And one time, uh, this, this uh, very effective evangelist and, and disciple, a, a young man came up to him and said, Hey, you're a Christian. Yes, I am. He said, Well, I'm interested in learning more about Christianity, and I'd like to meet with you for uh, uh, maybe a, a month or so, uh, maybe a couple times a week, and maybe we can talk about what it means to be a Christian because I'm interested. And he looked at him and he said, These are my terms. I have an extra room in my apartment. You need to move out of the dorm and move in with me. We'll spend as much time as possible together. I'll teach you how to read the Bible and pray. We'll eat together and work together, and I will show you everything I know about being a Christian. And the man was a little bit like, well, uh, uh, I'm not sure that I, I, I can commit to that. And Carson's friend said, well, then I don't have time for you. If you're just interested in the Bible as one more little uh, philosophy you can toy with and play with and experiment with for a little while until you move on to communism or hedonism or some other philosophy that I'm not interested. I don't have time for you. Are you in or out? It's a harsh answer, isn't it? Except for the fact that he put the question squarely in this man's mind how much are you in? Do you really want to know? There's room sometimes in our mission for this level of bluntness there are people you know who are not followers of jesus christ and you are gently padding around them and what they really need is a rather serious conversation now the problem i pick up this passage and the problem that i have with it as i look at it here is i'm often either either too harsh or not firm enough i wobble from one extreme to the other Sometimes you might imagine yourself being like Paul and you, you picture yourself like one of those lawyers in the courtroom drama that's going to stand up and make some speech to the jury that's going to turn the whole case and you're going to, you, you're there making your argument before the jury and, and the, the, uh, the prosecuting attorney standing up and objecting, objecting and the judge is banging away at the gavel and you, see, you keep going because you're on a roll and you got it and you're just setting the whole case out and you're like Perry Mason or Ben Matlock in your mind. And sometimes you imagine yourself that, you know, I have this pictured out, this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to be like Perry Mason or Ben Matlock, and actually I sound more like Barty Fife, right? just doesn't quite work the way it's supposed to. So I want to finish with some questions. I want to ask some questions that I think maybe will help us apply this passage. Here they are. First, How do you know if this level of confrontation is necessary? How do you know that what happens here? How do you know if this is necessary to do? Well, there may be other answers to that question, but here the issue is interference, isn't it? Bar Jesus is clearly interfering with Sergius Paulus and his opportunity to hear the gospel. Maybe there's someone in your life who by their rejection of the gospel is harming other people. Maybe there's an older sibling in your home. you have a number of children and one of your kids is walking away from the gospel and there's little kids and big brother is really setting a bad example and perhaps it's time for some harsh confrontation. Now question number two. How do you approach this confrontation? How do you approach this confrontation with prayer? You may not have the same level of prophetic insight that Paul does here, but you have the same Holy Spirit. So ask him for help in this situation So you approach is Question number three, how do you prepare for this confrontation? I suggest you start by asking some good questions of this opponent. I don't think you should necessarily go full-scale Apostle Paul on them right at the beginning. I think maybe you should ask them some questions. Um, <laughs> don't, don't go up to your antagonistic coworker and say, you son of the devil, don't, I don't, don't start there. Um, maybe you should ask them questions. Why are you so hostile to the gospel, to the things I'm telling you about Jesus? Or um, has something happened in your life? What experiences have you had with Christians that make you seem so angry about them? Um, have you ever thought about some of the weaknesses that your own views have? I don't have all the answers to the questions that you may ask about the Bible, but you know what you believe too. There's some weaknesses there. Have you thought about some of those? Ask questions, listen a lot. You make it to the point where it's appropriate for you to make a declaration like Paul here, but do it with, armed with knowledge that you found by asking them some significant questions. I'm not sure what happened to Bar Jesus after this. What, what did happen to him? The text doesn't tell us. Everybody who's read the book of Acts knows what he hopes Bar Jesus did. We, we all have a hope for him, right? That he he repented. But I do know what happened to Sergius Paulus, verse twelve. When the pro council saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Oh, huh. some days those who are followers of Jesus Christ are going to join Sergius Paulus in heaven because he believed around the throne of God, singing of Christ's worthiness and his greatness. And all who are united to the Spirit of God, by the Spirit of God to Christ, see this step here in this unfolding mission, and we rejoice. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we come before you and and we confess that... uh, We confess to you that uh, this is a, a startling passage as we see Paul speaking so stridently, and it reminds us, Lord, of the responsibility that we have to speak boldly and clearly. Thank you that you give us the Holy Spirit to help us. Thank you that the message of the gospel is powerful enough to sustain this level of confidence. Lord, I pray for these men and women who are sitting here today who have thought of a name, a person has come to mind um, who is this fierce and this antagonistic. Lord, for some sitting in the room, this this message is is just a, a helpful permission to them to go and speak clearly and boldly. For others, it's a great challenge because they're afraid. Lord, I ask that um, you would fill us with confidence and courage because your word is true and it is powerful. Thank you that um, even in moments when we fail you, our efforts don't live up to your standards. You are good and your spirit works. We are thankful to you for him and for this great message. Help us, as we often pray, we ask again that you would make us as a congregation more effective in representing Jesus Christ well in this county in which you have called us to live. We pray these things together in Christ's name, saying, Amen.
1: Please stand with us as we sing, Jesus is Lord.